This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. There he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, good morning. Uh, Professor Ward Scott here in the Manly Warthog Man Cave. We're expecting to tap into our guest at some point here, who will be talking about the medical world. Uh, let me just check a couple of things here. Uh, we are, of course, in the Manly Warthog Man Cave, and uh, we are um, um, glad to be bringing you the show. We were going to see now if we can kind of kill a little time here until we get our friend, and we may have to call in on a backup number here uh, just to let you know how sometimes we have to do this. Uh, we patch in, of course, the magic world of Zoom. But we're in the Mellon Law Studio, um, um, the only official law firm partner of University of Florida Gators, protected by, of course, uh, crime prevention. Our good friends at Crime Prevention, locally owned security system, Randy Elrad and John Pastore. And all of our good supporters, Shoot GTR. Uh, our new one, the latest one, is um, Allstate Insurance, Drew the Ocasio Style Cuts with David Ratliff and um, – and we'll leave somebody out if we start talking about it. We'll do that, obviously, uh, at the morning at the uh, bottom of the hour. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit here about uh, some of the local things until we try to uh, get a hold of our, our guest. Um, and I'm hoping my guest understands. Sometimes these guys can be in different time zones and uh, not understand what time zone we're in. But... Um, uh, we've got production working on it. We'll give up. We've got the cell number, and we'll call and see if we can connect there. Um, I'm just hunting for a couple of things myself here as we go. So um, um don't see anything that I can connect and participate in right now. Anyway, isn't it something that the local budget has already been trimmed here in the city of Gainesville? Uh, 17, 18, 19 million, I've heard. I haven't really checked the stats, uh, but I know that uh, uh, you've got uh, the, the beginning to feel the pinch, right, of the uh, no longer having the cash cow, the utility, to mess around with and run programs and pay. I mean, I mean you know, this, this peaceful Sunday at McPherson Center has been a disaster from day one. It's, it's not peaceful at all. It's really kind of a hood hangout. Uh, it's uh, noisy, undisciplined. I mean, I'm getting these reports from people in the neighborhood. Uh, noisy, undisciplined kind of activity that um, uh, simply doesn't uh, seem to conducive. It's not conducive to the finest things in the in the community. And it's been going on because they've had the excess money to appease these kinds of, uh, how shall I say this, social engineering uh, projects, and this one's been dismal from the very beginning, and it's been getting totally out of hand. It's more out of hand than it's ever been, and uh, you know it's going to be cut. Another one that is really kind of always been uh, questionable is um, 
of the uh, a record 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 house. It's not been um, very well. How shall I say this? Accounted for. Um, it's not been very well uh, supervised. What I'm getting, and uh, uh, we've now got Charlie on, and we'll load in when uh, when I give the cue. So I'm going to just finish up this little sequel here. So these local projects here have been expensive. They've been um, abused. And, you know, this is some of the things that's going to happen that should have happened a long time ago if the Gainesville City Commission had had any austerity and discipline itself. Uh, let's see if we can patch in our guest today. Charlie, is you there? Hi. Hello. 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 I can hear you. Fantastic. Can you see me? Can't see you yet. <laughs> so uh, we'll see if we can work that in. I see your name. Uh, bear with us, please, audience. There we are. Charlie, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. How I'm do I say well. your last name? How do I say your last name? Katibi. Katibi. That's Charlie Katibi. Okay, it's the first time Charlie and I have met. Where are you, Charlie, by the way? I'm in Washington, D.C. Oh, my golly, you're in the belly of the beast. I am. <laughs> I mean, can you drive around there and feel safe? <laughs> oh, absolutely not. Nobody absolutely. should have a car in D.C. Oh, God almighty. You know, I'm. Uh, uh, we're already interested. How did a young fellow like you get involved with, I'm just going to say this is outside our conversation, which we're going to take notes on. Charlie's here to talk about, he's a senior health policy analyst at Americans for Prosperity. He's not old enough. I mean, <laughs> you know, you got to be my age, Charlie, before you really start uh, wondering what in the heck is going to go on with medical uh, help for you because you don't really need it until you drip and stumble on the way to brush your teeth or things like that. You don't look like you're doing that. I'm just kind of curious. How did you uh, get to be, if I may back up here a moment, uh, involved with senior health policy analyst at Americans for Prosperity? It came by accident. Um, I was offered a position a few years ago at a small think tank in Wyoming. Didn't have any experience in the issue, um, but I just saw all the problems with our healthcare system. Those problems hit people when they're the most vulnerable and when they are least able to pay. And it sort of develops a moral righteousness in you to really deal with those issues because you see how much it hurts people when the system doesn't deliver for people when they need it. And especially when it becomes so expensive for people. Um, yes. You know, I'm to the age where I won't want to tell too many lies about me myself, but I'm to the place where, I'm, as one of my buddies said, all we do is go from one doctor to another. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you get your checkups, you need to stay on top of things as you get older. Mm -hmm. And I, I tell you, um, you know, I've got a pretty good Medicare plan. In fact, it's so good, they discontinued it. And uh, tried to trick me into taking a lesser value one, which I didn't bite on. And so I've stuck with this one. But when I'm at these doctor's offices and at these windows, uh, I see people coming up, for example, who really have a lot of out-of-pocket copay mm -hmm. and have to have, the pro have to have, for example, let's take a, a CAT scan or an MRI. They have to have this. But, buddy, it's going to be expensive for a lot of these people. Mm -hmm. So you're absolutely dead on. And occasionally there are young people who come in, of course. Unfortunately, they've been in a car accident or this, that, one, or another. But mm -hmm. generally what you see is, the, the, I hate to say it this way, but the decay of the human body. You know, we have a built-in time clock, you know. So uh, 
How do you get over for Americans for Prosperity from Wyoming? Well, I was I, I was working in a lot of state-level policy work, and I got to know the folks at Americans for Prosperity, both through my work at the Wyoming Liberty Group, that was one think tank I was at, then the Heartland Institute uh, in Chicago. And I got to meet the folks at Americans for Prosperity. They care about state-level policy um, as well as I did. Um, and I saw that they were really interested not only in fixing problems at the state level, but fixing problems at the federal level. And as frustrating as federal politics and federal policymaking is, it's very slow. There is no way to fix this problem in our healthcare system without fixing what's going on in Washington. Um, and that's one real reason why I was really driven to work with AFP um, at this time in our country's history right now. There's no way to deal with these problems without really untangling <laughs> the whole mess that our friends in Washington have created. Well, you're not the first person to describe it as a mess in Washington. And we have quite a number of people who are know the way around up there, so to speak. Some have been representatives and um, they're frustrated. There's one committee after another, their staff level um, lethargy, I guess, um, you know, and it, I don't know, you know, just shuffling papers and having meetings, but nothing seems to get done. Uh, we have one comment here from a fellow who has suffered at the hands as he gotten older of a frustrating system. And he says, good luck with fixing the deep state. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we, there is such a thing. Um, um, and we have a comment here from I'm just giving a chat line passing along to you. Most medical access problems are elevated costs directly related to government socialized medicine. Um, That's true. Isn't it true? And, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's not in the Constitution that the government mm-hmm. starts to get involved with medical care. How did yeah. this, how, you know, let's take, let's take that thread. You know, yeah. how did we drift into, by the way, there, as you know, there's so many things that are not in the Constitution mm-hmm. that they act as if they were. How did we drift into this issue of the government? And we've interviewed people from Canada. We've interviewed people from England. They, they come here to get their medical. That's how bad mm-hmm. it is there. So we don't want to be what they are because there's no other places to go. Can you comment on how we drifted into this in your research? Mm-hmm. Well, we've put the government in charge, being the chief central decision maker in a lot of what we're going to be spending money on, what we're going to cover, and how much that's going to cost. So in the 1960s, we created Medicare and Medicaid. Um, these are programs for that exist for good reason. People, low-income people, sick people, and elderly people, they need access to high-quality health care. That is indisputable. The question is, do we want the government to be the one deciding how we care for those people that need care? And we've just seen so many problems come from that decision that lawmakers made in the 60s. Um, One real major problem that we've seen is that Medicare, for instance, they pay doctors that are part of a hospital system. They will pay doctor's offices three times more than if they were a freestanding independent doctor who owned their own doctor's practice. Now, that creates a gigantic incentive for doctor's offices to merge with hospital systems and create these giant hospital monopolies. And that's exactly what we've seen both in Florida and around the country right now. 
Essentially, what we've got here in the Gainesville area where we're broadcasting, we're actually north of Gainesville. Uh, we've seen these docks in the box spring up, and they are extensions of the big hospitals. Hospital Corporation of America is uh, uh, is one of the hospitals. Of course, we have the Shands Teaching Hospital, and we have the VA. And, um, it, you know, I'm kind of to the age, as I say, where I kind of keep an eye on this stuff. And then going out into other areas, uh, other cities, and created a, a footprint there. Um, I don't know if that's, you know, for the good or the probably not, because, yeah. you know, what's happening too. As you, pardon me if I take your time, but I've got so many things that are interesting to me and my friends. We are losing our wise old doctors who have practiced for years, who've seen so much, who don't feel like they have to run every test known to man to cover their butts from the lawyers, being replaced by people who are really almost at the end of the other end of the continuum. You got any comment on that? Yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, I thought you were I thought you were gonna continue. Yes, um, you are absolutely right. Um, doctors, they hate the system that we are in right now where they feel like they cannot afford to be an independent be an independent profession and be able to build on the unique experiences and expertise that they've developed to serve their communities. When they work for a hospital, they abide by the hospital's rules. Those hospitals may not share their values. Those hospitals have these built-in protocols that don't match, oftentimes don't match the needs of their patients, but they're employees. And when you're an employee, you serve your, you, you have to abide by the rules of your employer. And that's a big reason why a lot of doctors, they're retiring early, for instance. And they don't feel as if the expertise and experience that they've developed is that useful because their employer doesn't allow them to actually treat people based on that experience that they've developed. So this is another major problem with the way that Medicare pays because Medicare is basically paying our healthcare system to become a monopoly, we are losing valuable information and valuable experience that doctors have developed over decades to serve their patients. I certainly know people who are examples of that. I have a couple of friends who are retired. Um, and at the peak of their wisdom, so to speak, is the way I view it. At the peak of their wisdom, and they were accessible. Uh, they had patients. I know I'll give you one story, and this is something I'm sure you've run across. Uh, this man was told um, by the business that took over their practice. Um, I won't say what practice it was because somebody will know it, but that's okay. Uh, very specialized, you know, world of, of uh, involving surgery and and, and uh, expert advice and whatnot. And along came the business who took over their. They started out as a collection of doctors doing their thing, and then the, the business bought them. They came along one day and told my friend, "Hey, listen." You're only seeing 15 patients a day. You need to see 30. And he says, yeah, but these are 15 patients I've taken care of all my life, all their lives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's part of being a doctor is listening mm-hmm. to their problems and, you know, talking about them, making them feel better. It's a lot of things just other than run down the hall and get an X-ray. Mm-hmm. And they said, no, 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 we don't. You know, that, that's not the point. You've got to double your productivity each day. Mm-hmm. Well, the guy just uh, took down his stethoscope and quit. Yeah. Quit. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not going to do it. And I know a couple, three stories like that, that really, and even now in the community, I'm I'm not going to get too personal about it because people figure it out here. 
call them up on the side and say, hey, listen, you know, what do you think? You know, they can tell you, but they can't heal your practice, your work on you, you know. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I've heard doctors say, Charlie, is, well, we do the test, but uh, Medicare won't pay for it. Mm -hmm. Until you get a certain amount of time elapsed and then they'll pay for it again. Uh, I think this was an echo uh, exam. Well, we can't get another one that quickly. They wanted to. The doctors wanted to. Mm-hmm. But they weren't going to get paid. Mm-hmm. These are giant problems. And particularly with the first example you just listed, that doctor had been seeing 15 patients for years and years, and then he got orders to see 30. And now he's not seeing anybody. So that's that's a perfect example of our system and our federal decisions literally driving doctors out of medicine. And now nobody, now no, not 30, not 15, nobody, no patients are receiving care from that doctor right now, um, which is a giant shame. If you don't have doctors, if you don't have a system that encourages doctors to serve, to want to serve, to contribute to their community, we don't have a healthcare system. Um, the building, the machines in a hospital, they aren't the ones delivering care. You need people who know their patients, who know their conditions. You need doctor. You need people that care and know how to actually use those machineries. And if you don't have doctors that are willing and able to do that, then you don't have a healthcare system, period. And that's sort of the point in our healthcare system's history where we are at right now. This is how dire it is right now. Got a couple of questions coming in. I'll pass along to you. Is there any hope for the private insurance, uh, medical insurance? Uh, I think here in Florida, the biggest one we got is Blue Cross. Um, what's the story on that, or you know, route? Can you take that route and go to private, or is it? I'm hoping. I'm hoping that there is a lot of that we can sort of pull back from where we are heading right now. Um, so. Me and several organizations, we sent a letter to Congress urging them to fix these payment problems that we've discussed. And a big reason, a major reason why the way Medicare pays is such a problem is it actually raises costs in the private insurance market as well. Because when Medicare raises their rates, hospitals actually charge private insurers higher rates as well. So basically, every single dollar that Medicare raises their rates um, private insurers have to pay one one a dollar and sixteen cents more. So the way Medicare is paying is actually driving costs higher for privately insured folks as well. But if we can bring down those costs, if we can say, "Hey, Medicare, you have to reimburse hospital-owned doctors' facilities at the same rate as independent physician practices," you can actually bring down the costs by hundreds of billions of dollars um, for privately insured patients, um, which is a which will deliver major savings. Because that doesn't just mean lower premium, lower costs for taxpayers. That means lower out-of-pocket costs, low deductibles, um, just a lot lower costs that people are paying every day for health care. Well, I'm looking at the uh, some of the notes here uh, we've got, and it's uh, interesting. Um, question we got coming in, what is how did Obamacare did it mess? You know, did it mess it up? Did it help? What? It messed it up a lot. 
messed it, it up, messed it up a lot. How, that's always yeah. you know, I'd love to hear how it did it from somebody who knows it like you really well. Can you yeah. walk through a dummy a point by point kind of thing we can all follow here? Yeah, here's a here's a perfect example. So we've been talking about these huge hospital monopolies that have been forming. Obamacare actually empowers these hospital monopolies in a way. And one way they do that is they actually ban physicians from owning their own hospitals. So, for example, if you're a doctor working in a hospital system and you say, I'm sick of this whole system, I'm sick of being treated as an employee, my experience isn't valued, I want to start my own hospital, I want to serve my community the way I want to, you are banned. Obamacare prohibited those facilities from opening because they said that if you are free to open that facility, but Medicare will not pay you. So you couldn't care for any of the 70 million seniors in this country. So functionally, those facilities financially are cannot operate without that. So Obamacare basically cut off a major source of competition from some of the most skilled people in our healthcare profession from being able to compete with these giant monopolies, which is a giant problem. Um, Americans for Prosperity, we've been, we've really made this a priority to end this ban on physician owned hospitals because we want doctors who want to serve their communities, they want to serve their patients. We want to give them the tools that they need to actually do that. And right now, Obamacare isn't. So Obamacare corrupted Medicare in a sense. Can you mm-hmm. can you talk about that a little bit? I, Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So during the during the, the debate over Obamacare in Congress, a lot of hospitals they they said we will go along with Obamacare, but only if you prevent our competition from being able to compete with us. And those were doctors who own their own hospitals. And so they put in a provision that said, if you're an existing doctor-owned hospital, you cannot expand. And they said, if you're a doctor who's thinking of leaving our hospital system that isn't treating you well, you are banned from opening your own physician-owned hospital after the date of, uh, I believe, March 13th, when 2010, when Obamacare was enacted. So once that date fell, doctors from henceforth were banned from being able to start their own hospitals. And this was driven through Medicare policy and driven at the behest of large entrenched hospital groups that did not, that enjoyed their position in the marketplace. They liked being able to charge higher prices. They liked being able to dictate to doctors how they should deliver care. And Unfortunately, that was how lawmakers decided to go. And we've been suffering the consequences ever since. Charlie, everything you say is uh, so interesting because I was thinking as you talked that most people who want a doctor um, don't feel good. So they call up the doctor's office and say, I'd like to see so-and-so. And depending upon, I guess, I don't know what it's depending upon. Well, let me, let me run that down with you in a minute. Well, we'll see you in six weeks or, you know, well, yeah, but I don't feel good today, you know. Mm-hmm. So this is, I guess this is why we now have what we call uh, a doc in the box where uh, we don't have doctors 
Let me ask you about this because I see we've got five more minutes before break, and I'm assuming you'll stay with us after the break. Um, you know what we mean. They're, they're, they're staffed by physician's assistants or I'm not demeaning them, but you don't, they're not the doctor or nurse practitioners. And you can go there and pretty much get a low level need addressed, I guess. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that working? Is that helping or how does that fit into this whole conversation? I would say, I would say we absolutely need, you mentioned nurse practitioners and physician assistants. At this point, we absolutely need those, those staff right now because we've seen such a shortage come from the medical profession. Like we've talked about, a lot of doctors have been leaving the profession because of a lot of problems with federal policy right now. And there simply aren't enough doctors in this country right now to be able to deliver a lot of those lower, uh, low complexity issues. And the fact is, is that those nurses and physician assistants, they do have the training to deliver a lot of great low complexity care. They aren't going to be, you know, they aren't going to be delivering any knee surgeries or any hip surgeries or any brain surgeries because that's not what they're trained to do. But what they are trained to do, we should absolutely empower them to supplement the work that physicians are doing. And frankly, we need them, especially in rural Florida right now, where there is an even bigger doctor shortage. Um, Those professions are absolutely necessary to make sure that patients actually get the care that they need. On the Charlie KB, did I say that right, Charlie? Katibi. Katibi. I've got to get that right. Uh, boy, I'm telling you, I'll, I'll blame it on my age here for that. Katibi. <laughs> Senior Health Policy Analyst at Americans for Prosperity. We're talking about a very complicated situation here that if you haven't uh, had to use it, you will sooner or later. And that is our medical system. Um, when I get back, i got a break coming up. i got five more minutes, four more minutes before break. I want to talk about what the phenomenon of the hospitalist, you know, they roam around. They, they're doctors, but they obviously, from their point of view, they found a way that they could continue to practice. But they have, don't have any rapport with the patient. They have rapport with the computer, which has the uh, patient's records in it. And believe me, I know this. One will come in in the morning and look at the computer that the one that saw you the night before put all your stuff in. And you never see the same guy twice, but they see all the data. You know, it's a weird feeling. I mean, it's, uh, and there's, I guess they are pure employees of the hospital, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, talking about Obamacare, that's another side effect of the Affordable Care Act. That law put in a lot of requirements to say, if you're a hospital, if you're a doctor's office, and you want to continue to receive Medicare's reimbursements, you have to transition to electronic medical records. And the the value that electronic medical records can play, there is a lot of potential there to collecting data, noticing trends, and being able to make recommendations. But right now, the way that Obamacare structured those requirements, it's essentially taken doctors away from caring for their patients, actually, and forced them to be um, glorified data entry uh, employees, just punching in 
tons and tons of data. The system is very complex. It's not well thought out. And we, you see this both in primary care as well as in hospital care, where doctors are steadily actually treating the, pe- the patients less and less time over that medical, over the length of the medical visit. So right now, if you, if you go for a primary care visit, you'll probably see your doctor for maybe two minutes, for instance. Um, and that's because just because our healthcare system, our primary care system and these data entry requirements, they don't make it possible for doctors to actually spend a quality amount of time um, with their patients. If you go to a direct primary care doctor, you'd probably get an entire half hour, 50 minutes to a half hour of them working with you, evaluating with you, because they don't have to deal with those paperwork requirements. They don't bill insurance. So they actually don't have to punch in all of the reimbursements to seek all those codes to seek reimbursements. They can actually just treat them because they know that they are being paid by a subscription model. Um, so what you've talked about is another major side effect of Obamacare. Those paper, those electronic medical record requirements, they take doctors away from actually having time to see their patients and they really raise the cost of actually staying in business um, as a medical profession. Well, I'm a Charlie KDB. I got it right now. I know I do. Senior Health Policy Analyst, Americans Prosperity. We'll talk about that think tank in a minute when we get back with Charlie. He's in the belly of the beast in D.C., and um, God bless him for being there. I mean, you know, somebody's got to do it. <laughs> I, you know, yeah, it's uh, it's quite a trip around there, uh, Charlie. I'm going to get back and talk to you about this, uh, these committees that you uh, are sending your letters to because um, hopefully they do, not, they, they do, they get something done. Hopefully uh, our uh, reporting all too often is that these committees uh, shoot the bull and, and uh, you know, do all the appearances of getting things, but they never get anything done. And it just sort of flounders and becomes one of the really frustrating problems for people like you who um, come there and want to, you know, have some meaningful input. Uh, we're going to be back in a moment with Charlie Cadeby. And I'm looking at your chat line, a lot of questions coming in. Uh, here's a comment. Someone has to drive 65 to 105 miles one way for a doctor's appointments, lives out in a rural area in Virginia. Um, that's a pretty good haul, you know. And, um, you know, if you're out, in, you know, like you say, if you're out in the rural countryside, uh, it, it's it's another world. So uh, maybe we could talk. But we've got so many things to talk about with this issue. And it's uh, really a great to have you here. We're right. I'm going to do a couple things um, on the weather, Charlie. I think you'll probably be able to hear it. And uh, uh, maybe a little highlight on a couple of things going on in the, in the world of weather. We'll be right back with you, sir. Ward's got on the Ward's got files. We'll be right back after we take our bottom of the hour break. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. 
There are a few tickets left for Gainesville's best pig roast and special whiskey debut. Sunday, May 21st from 2 to 5 p.m., Spurrier's Gridiron Grill is roasting a whole pig and sipping piggyback rye whiskey. Join us at Vicer's Rooftop for the release of Spurrier's Piggyback Rye's private labeled barrel select whiskey. We'll have specialty drinks, games, raffles, plus each ticket includes your own bottle of Spurrier's Piggyback Rye Whiskey to take home. Go to Spurriers.com to get your ticket to join 125 of your friends at the Rooftop Pig Roast before we sell out. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, R&R Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Word Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth. All bees poop. A warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Back to Ward Hog in the Manly Warthog Command Center here, and brought to you the weather by our great friends at Lewis Oil. Wendell Lewis, fossil fuel, don't be afraid of it. Hey, come on now. Chevron Stations, great sponsor for us. Uh, well, we're looking around at some patchy rain here in Florida today. And we need it. You know, you might get it on one side of the road. You might not get it on the other. But uh, bear with it. You may get some before the day. The next day is over. And it's heating up a little bit. We're nudging up to 90 here. And we're up around the 70s at night. So we're growing grass. And for those of us who raise livestock, as we do here, outside the Warthog Command Center, we have the cattle farm. Uh, and we're really in the piney woods of north central Florida, which is God's country. So, um Right now, the price of cattle, by the way, is pretty high for the young calves because uh, people are wanting to restock their herds, and they're bringing pretty good prices at the livestock market. Um, we've got a sad story to report because this is Florida. We have a child that died in a car, two-year-old child, uh, because the mothers uh, didn't uh, pay attention to the heat and all that. I don't, I don't like to talk about these kind of stories, but you know, you need to remind people that even with your pets, you don't leave them in the doggone car with the windows rolled up in Florida, really just to practically anywhere. But, of course, this had child neglect charges go with it. it happened in Holmes County and uh, near the Florida-Alabama state line. I just put that in there because it's uh, 
it's not the best of news, but uh, it is worthwhile reminding you uh, that, listen, you know, uh, we've even had canine dogs die sometimes when the engine went off on the car they were in and they were in there too long. That happened one time around here. So um, keeping all that in mind. We're talking with Charlie Katie, who is the senior analyst of uh, uh, American for Prosperity. And we came up with an interesting topic between us uh, on the break that we don't think anybody has much talked about. And that is the positive effects of COVID um, in terms of medical bureaucracy. That's a discussion I don't know that I've had with anyone. And uh, it came out of the fact that uh, we're Zooming so much now. Charlie's in D.C. I'm here in uh, Alachua and our production guys in Gainesville. And this is all possible and really developed, if you will, um, by uh, COVID. So we were talking about this, kicking it around on the break. And we decided, hey, there are ironically some good things that came out of COVID, but I don't know what they are. But Charlie is able to talk about them. Charlie, you want to take the take that uh, theme up? Absolutely. Yeah. So one, the first obvious one is now we can have Zoom calls with our doctor right now. Um, so prior to COVID-19, Medicare actually banned doctors from delivering telehealth, virtual primary care consultations, mental health consultations. Really? Really? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Medicare had these extremely strict requirements that said that if you want, if you were a doctor and you wanted to deliver telehealth to a patient, you couldn't just deliver it in their own home. That patient actually had to drive to a second doctor's office, go to that doctor's office, and then dial you up if they, if you wanted to uh, treat them virtually. So that is a giant wholly unnecessary, expensive bureaucracy that just adds enormous costs to our healthcare system. I'm very thankful that the federal government in this instance did something very right. They saw that for a lot of patients who didn't have COVID-19, it would actually be very dangerous for them to person with a doctor who may have been treating a COVID-19 patient and potentially spread the virus to them. So they let the reins off of telehealth. They let Medicare reimburse for those services. And we saw an explosion in telehealth that actually not only delivered valuable healthcare services, it actually made sure that those services could be delivered safely and to make sure that they weren't, these doctors weren't spreading COVID when they saw them. So this was a gigantic blessing that we were able to have this amazing technology ready to go and we are just very fortunate the federal government decided to do something right and actually make sure that these technologies were available to actually treat people where doctors weren't available, um, especially in rural areas. Telehealth has been so, so valuable to areas that simply don't have in-person doctors. Well, that's a nice feature. I think I've enjoyed using it at least one time I had a teleconference with a physician. Is there anything else that we can say was a silver lining in this dark cloud? I mean, a big one is they we saw during COVID-19 that there were a lot of benefits from removing certificate of need laws. Now, not many people know what that means, but in most states, um, including Florida until very recently, if you want to simply if you want to build your own hospital or build an, uh, your own surgery center, you are banned unless you first ask a government board for permission. 
This is a policy that exists in 35 states. And that board is tasked by existing hospitals and existing surgery centers. So those boards have an enormous incentive, obviously, to say, no, thank you. We have plenty of surgery centers and plenty of hospitals. We don't need more choices because that reduces their competition. During COVID-19, a lot of fantastic governors decided to say, we cannot afford to have this system in place. Our hospitals are overstaffed, they're overworked, and we need to give them more flexibility to add new beds, add new equipment, um, particularly ventilators. Ventilators were very important during COVID-19. And you actually had to ask these boards for permission if you wanted to add more ventilators or more beds. So a lot of governors said, right now, the system is ridiculous. We can't hamstrung, hamstring our hospitals and make it impossible for them to actually treat their patients. So they temporarily froze those laws, suspended them so that hospitals could add more beds and add more ventilators and to give doctors and nurses the tools they needed to actually treat patients. And this is a fantastic example of a policy that absolutely should be continued. There is no reason to have these boards in place. They only empower these hospital monopolies that we've been talking about. And they disempower patients. It takes away the choices that are available to them to say, I'm sick of this high cost hospital. I want to go to a lower cost hospital or I want to go to a surgery center that charges even less. Um, so a lot of states have been make, taking steps to actually remove these really horrible, burdensome laws. South Carolina, for instance, their governor just signed a fantastic bill that essentially demolishes this entire certificate of need program. And this is going to make sure that life-saving care is actually available to patients. Um, and that is a very, very good thing. We have someone here who seems to think that after COVID, telemedicine stopped. Is that true or false? Telemedicine is still going is still going on, and I'd be I'd be interested to maybe understand what sort of experience that they are hearing about. I do know that you know telehealth isn't just a federal policy; it's also a state level policy. So, unfortunately, something that some states have done is they said that after they declared COVID nineteen was no longer an emergency they stopped allowing out-of-state doctors from delivering telehealth in-state. Mm. So that's a major problem. I don't know if Florida, I don't know if that policy affects Florida, because I know that Florida passed a law even prior to COVID-19 that allowed out-of-state doctors to deliver care in-state through telehealth. But, you know, this is a very complex issue, and people at the margins have seen their care be affected by um, all of these COVID-19 emergency declarations go away. That's interesting because I had never thought of the uh, um, out-of-state doctors being accessible to somebody over telemedicine. Mm -hmm. you know, for me, it was always, you know, my regular doctor, I just didn't want to go in or didn't need to go in physically and find a mm -hmm. parking spot and all that business and, traverse the county or whatever you needed to do when you could do what you needed to do over the telemedicine. Um, here's a question. Are the experimental COVID drugs completely safe? Uh, don't know if that's in your wheelhouse, but uh, what's your experience with that? And my, the, the, the ringer here is completely. 
you know, I don't know that if anything, it's completely safe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, nobody, no drugs are completely safe for every single patient. Every patient, they're going to respond differently in some way. Um, I'm not here to speak on behalf of Pfizer or the drugs that, that the FDA approved. Um, but I do know, I do know that, um, they did help. There was a lot of evidence to show that they did help slow the virus, but I will say there was also a lot of evidence that some patients with some conditions, they were adversely affected. It looks like that they were adversely affected by those vaccines. Um, so that could be an example of not saying that of just having the FDA maybe, maybe release some new information to say that, Hey, this vaccine in most cases, for instance, would have is safe and effective. However, for certain patients with certain conditions, the, there could be some adverse consequences that you should be aware of. Um, I don't know this for a fact. This has just been some stuff that I've been, that I've read about. Right. Right. Well, I, mean, yeah. I didn't want to throw you a curve there, but um, <laughs> And, and, you know, there's a lot of things here completely. I don't know of any drugs. In fact, I have a physician friend that says that the word pharmacy comes from the old Greek word, which really alludes to poison. Because every time you take a, a pill, you know, you are poisoning something. Uh, you're tolerating it because it's been tested. And it's but it is it's not your normal chemistry. It's in there to uh, to alter the chemistry. And let's talk about that for a moment. If we can um, pharmaceutical prices and is that in uh, something that you research or is that part of what we're talking about the um, some of these medicines are so prohibitively expensive and mm-hmm. necessary uh some of the advanced um, drugs for cancer and whatnot how does that how, how does that fit into your research i mean i can definitely talk about a little bit about that um and this actually fits into obamacare um so prior to obamacare we had a relatively streamlined system where drug, simple drugs could get onto the market easier through generics. So if there's a brand name drug, it's been on the market for a, a few years, then a, another company, um, after their patent expires, they can sell a generic version of that drug, produce it relatively simply, see the patents on that brand name drug, reproduce it, package it and sell it as a generic alternative. That policy dramatically brings down the price of drugs. We still have that policy in place. It's a, it, and it works relatively well. The problem is that a lot of conditions right now, they need to be treated by different kinds of drugs. These are called biologics. These are extremely, extremely complex drugs. Um, and those, these drugs aren't approved through that older, more, more effective system of approval. Um, they are approved under a system that was, in fact, created by Obamacare. And Obamacare created a whole slew of different requirements, and different approval mandates and processes that these drugs have to go through. And unfortunately, because of the high cost that it takes to go through this really burdensome process, the cost of the generic version of biologics, these are called biosimilars, the cost of these drugs are through the roof compared to small, more traditional small molecule drugs. Um, and that's a big problem for people that need those drugs. These are drugs that treat 
a lot more complex issues and we need drugs to come to the market um, faster and more quickly to deal with them. But an unfortunate consequence of the system that we have right now um, is that they aren't coming in fast enough. And because of all of these burdensome FDA requirements, those costs actually have to be baked into the cost of the drug. And that gets passed on to patients, unfortunately. Ronnie Kadeby here is with American Prosperity uh, Think Tank Organization and is in D.C. We're taking questions off the chat line here that I'm looking at uh, and to see if there's anything on your mind. Uh, we'll try to cover it, provided that uh, this is in our, our uh, particular subject today. Um, here's a question that I've always, and I don't think, listening to you, that it's going to ever happen. They tried to repeal Obamacare once. Didn't happen. It looks like to me, it sounds like to me, it is so entrenched and embedded that we can't get rid of it. And should we? I mean, from what you're saying, it seems as if it's corrupted some of the other forms of payment. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, why can't that case be made? Yeah. Stop I mean, this is, I'm going to stop. Is very, you're, asking a very, you're asking a very complex question. Um, I would I would say that the folks who tried to go after the repeal and replace agenda, um, there were a whole host of areas in our healthcare system that they could have fixed. There was a whole host of problems in Obamacare that we could have fixed and gone after and made a good case. Um, we talked about how just in this conversation, we talked about how Obamacare imposes a giant ban on physicians from opening their own hospitals. That empowers hospital monopolies. We've talked about how Obamacare imposed this really burdensome system from letting generic biosimilars come into the market. That empowers drug manufacturing monopolies. Um, just from my humble vantage point, I don't, I think the folks who pursued repeal and replace several years ago, they didn't go after those more politically viable and more impactful reforms. I think that there was a big argument over how we should cover pre-existing conditions. And I think that part of Obamacare is just simply too politically toxic to go after. And frankly, I think that that is such a small part of Obamacare. Um, the protection for pre-existing conditions, you could make a valuable case, actually, that if you really have a debilitating health condition, no, private insurers should not be able to discard your health insurance because of that. Um, does that mean that Obamacare's, the way Obamacare did it uh, is the right way? No. And there are so many, art, and there's so many cases where we've seen that Obamacare, because of the way that they regulated health insurance, they raise costs for everybody and they raise costs for sick people as well. Um, but I think that there were so many opportunities to fix our healthcare system and Obamacare is just one sliver of it. Most of Obamacare just affects the individual market. But there are so many problems in our healthcare system that our lawmakers could have focused on. We could have focused on all these problems in Medicare's payments that we've been talking about. That affects 70 million people right there. We could have talked about how to fix how we tax health insurance in the employer-based market. That affects another 150 million people. Um, but I think that they got very fixated on 
how do we address Obamacare, which only affected 12 million people. And I think since then, Republicans have been understandably scared about touching health care. Um, but they shouldn't be. Voters support voters are voters do support um, policies that make that introduce more competition into our healthcare space and bring more choices into our healthcare space. And that is the agenda that um, both Republicans and Democrats should get on board with, because that is the way you actually bring down costs in this country. Charlie K to be, and I'm just looking over the notes here again. Um, really, we've been talking primarily about hospital consolidation. It seems to be a forced upon us by Obamacare mm-hmm. and has um, leaked over into the other uh, systems of reimbursement, such as private insurance and even Medicare, to the extent that uh, everybody has to, this is the way I'm seeing this. Maybe I'm wrong. I'll dance to the fiddle of Obamacare. Um, I never realized after, you know, after talking to you, I have the impression that the um, Obamacare is driving the whole medical insurance business. Have I got that kind of, have I drawn that out of your conversation? Is that accurate? They've, it's had a gigantic impact both on the way hospital care is delivered and the way health insurers are in business. That is correct. Um, in a lot of ways, because Obamacare imposed so many requirements on the health insurance industry, they've actually gone into business of medicine to actually supplement or recoup the costs that Obamacare has created. So there are a lot of health insurers right now that just like the way hospitals are owning medical practices, there's a lot of health insurers that are now going into uh, the medical industry and buying up medical practices, buying up physician practices. Um, there is one, I, I believe there is a health insurance industry. There's one health insurance company that employs 17,000 doctors in this, in this country. Um, now that, does that mean that insurers should be banned from owning and operating physician practices and delivering and introducing new innovations? No, but I think we should with open eyes, see, well, how do our laws affect the healthcare industry? And is the, does that impose costs on the medical profession? And in some ways, yes. Like with, like when doctors become employees of hospitals, when employee, when doctors become employees of health insurers, they can have different incentives. And a lot of times those incentives don't align with the well-being of their patients, which is a major, major problem. Well, I guess we're going to have one time uh, for a couple more questions. Uh, these congressional committees, Energy and Commerce and House Education Workforce, uh, they heard, have they gotten a letter or have they uh, talking about that? Where is, what's the status of that, please? Yeah. Yeah. Happy to talk about that. Um, so, yeah, this was about three weeks ago. Um, Americans for Prosperity sent a letter to, um, to Congress. Um, and this letter has been signed by 22 other organizations, uh, think tanks and ex- and medical experts. Um, and these are individuals both on the left, the center and the right. And this letter urged them to fix the payment problems that we've talked about in Medicare. So like I said, Medicare will pay a doctor's office three times more for the exact same service than they would to a individual 
a physician that is owned, that operates and owns their own independent medical practice. So this payment problem, this payment system creates a giant incentive for physician offices to merge with hospitals and create these giant regional hospital monopolies. So we urged these, um, we urge members of Congress to end this practice, equalize the payments. If you're a, a doctor's office, you should be paid the same rate, whether you are independent or whether you are owned by a hospital. It's the exact same service. It's the exact same type of facility. You should be reimbursed at the same level. And we sent that at the same week that two major committees are looking at these payment issues right now. This is the Education and Workforce Committee in the House, and this is the Energy and Commerce Committee in the House. Both of those committees aren't just talking about the issue. They're introducing proposals to deal with these problems right now, to equalize the payments between um, hospital-owned doctors and independent doctors. And we wanted to make sure that these offices knew that the folks in Washington who look at health care, we understand collectively, both Republicans and Democrats, left and the right, we agree on this one issue. And we should use this unity to really push our lawmakers to do the right thing for their communities and for patients in their districts. Well, that's very interesting. We'll keep an eye on that. And should that turn out favorably sometime, maybe we can have you back and talk about it. Um, I've been talking with Charlie K. to be Senior Health Policy Analyst, Americans for Prosperity. Americans for Prosperity's website is americansprosperity.org, is it? I don't. Yes. Remember. Yes, it is. Right. right. And uh, we've been talking about establishing site neutral payments in Medicare and uh, America's healthcare system and making it affordable and competitive. And if you haven't had the um, issue of needing um, some of these um, 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 problems addressed, you will sooner or later uh, take it from an old guy here who knows what he's talking about. Charlie, it's great to see you, and um, hopefully you'll stay in touch with us some way or another. We put this show out on about 37 different platforms. Uh, and it'll be distributed pretty widely. And, and we'll try to uh, uh, make sure that uh, uh, we stay in touch with Americans for Prosperity and what you guys are doing in D.C. And, and um, take an Uber while you're there. I feel, you know, going <laughs> while you go around town. <laughs> I think that's, I <laughs> that, that's the way you travel up there. Anyway, Charlie, thanks so much for checking in with us. And thanks so much to the Warthog Command Center for all you all listening and watching. Uh, We will be spreading this out through our distribution system, and we hope you have a great weekend. A Warthog Command Center out.